On this episode of the Resound Project podcast. The kingdom of God is coming forward and the men of violence are trying to get in on the act. Well, of course they are. And if Christians aren't doing their job, don't be surprised if other people perceive a vacuum and try and fill it. We're living in a time of deep cultural change, and we often don't know how to address the complex challenges we face. But the church has something positive to offer in the midst of the struggle. Now's the time for the church to help chart a new path forward. I'm Jason Harris, and this is the Resound Project Podcast. Join me as we explore the complicated relationship between Christianity and culture, with thoughtful leaders including scholars and practitioners, professors and pastors. Together we strive to make sense of some of the most challenging issues of our day and offer ideas for how to navigate the confusing times in which we live. I recently spoke with my good friend N.T. Wright about what is contributing to the fragmentation of the broader church and what Christians might do in order to help build bridges rather than contribute to the dysfunction. In this first part of our conversation, we drill down on specific issues such as racial division and cultural confusion about sex, gender, and identity. And we discuss the church's role in teaching people not only what to think, but how to think, and to do so wisely in disorienting times. Tom is a world-renowned biblical scholar, a prolific author, and a retired bishop in the Church of England. He currently serves as a senior research fellow within Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford. Here's the conversation. As an Anglican bishop, a Pauline theologian, and a New Testament scholar, you have a unique perspective, I think, on the relationship between Christianity and culture. So I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you here today. Whether one is a Christian or not, many people have been left wondering what happened to the church with a capital C and what can be done about it. So perhaps as a way of opening up the conversation, I could simply ask you, what do you believe are some of the most pressing issues facing the church today and what's contributing to the fragmentation of of the church in America in particular from your point of view? I I should start by saying you mentioned what my specialist areas were and are, obviously Pauline theology and New Testament studies. I'm basically a historian, but the history that I study is the history of the explosion of early Christianity into the complex cultures of the first century. And I've always been fascinated by the parallels and the differences uh, between that explosion into their culture and where we are as practicing Christians in our culture. So I'm constantly going to and fro, but my expertise is primarily in the first century, but naturally since I live in the 21st century and since the people I preach to or teach or whatever are themselves living in and ministering in many cases to people in our century, these are the key issues. And so one could easily compile a long list and it it wouldn't actually be difficult to to, to rattle off all sorts of things. Um, What did the church have to say about the pandemic? Pandemic. Um, answer is a very confused noise from various sources. What has the church had to say about the Ukraine war? Well, we've wrung our hands, but I haven't heard too much in the way of major theological reflection on whether 
um, we can use the old just war arguments in an age which has nuclear weapons and so on. Um, that there, those are two enormous issues right off the top. For me, um, back of a lot of that, there is the question of church unity. In the New Testament, it's taken for granted by one writer after another, and especially Paul and John and Jesus himself, that Jesus' followers will be one, and that that'll be something you'll have to struggle for, but that there will be a unity which will enable them to bear united witness to the Lordship of Jesus in the world. We've um, de facto given up on that um, in the Protestant West for the last 400 years, and we have a multiplicity of things calling themselves churches, including my own and yours, um, uh, which both are and aren't united with lots of others who we sort of respect and wave at down the street, but we don't know quite what it might mean. And so I have a sense that we're handicapped in terms of then being able to say, we as Christians ought to be addressing the world in thus and so in these ways. Um, but that doesn't, that shouldn't stop us, and it doesn't stop us from being able to name and discuss the key issues. And there are obviously other ones. At the moment, there's a great debate in the British press about the so-called woke agenda with all its different bits and pieces. And part of the trouble, I think, is the collapse of public discourse into oversimplifications where people put all the different issues, whether it's in America, gun rights or abortion, um, or whether it's uh, the transgender issues and so on, people put them all together so that you're either on this side of the page or on that side of the page. Whereas in fact, these are mostly very different issues and people in other parts of the world don't see them as umbilically linked in the way that we do. So there's a kind of a lot of stepping back from knee-jerk assumptions which has to happen. And I think the church can actually help with that, that in our preaching and teaching, we need to give people the courage to think through the differences between different issues and work out where they are and where the confusions have, have arisen. And uh, that's only one part of it. But I think I think the, the, the church does have a role in a, a very confused and actually sometimes anti-intellectual age in teaching people not only what to think, but also how to think and reminding people about what thinking wisely actually looks like and marshalling evidence and creating an argument and so on. So there's all these issues. The other one, which just to put on the table, uh, which I see more and more clearly, is the real danger to contemporary democracy. And I'm not saying that democracy, as we in the West have known it, is an absolute mandate from the New Testament, but Western democracy has grown out of what we loosely call the Judeo-Christian heritage, um, with some gains and some losses on the way, and uh, most of us uh, are happy that it should be so because tyranny and anarchy are both great evils and democracy seems to be a way, a tenuous way of, of avoiding both. But we in the church maybe ought to have more of a role than we normally think of in terms of um, re-articulating to people how democracy actually works. And I think it was your very own Thomas Jefferson who said, for democracy to work, you have to have an educated electorate. Well, maybe the church has its part to play in teaching people how to think, not just what to think, in order to have a wisely functioning society. Now, this is just for starters and off the top of my head, but um, uh, I think you well, see where some of these things are going. And that's right uh, in line with what we're trying to accomplish, because I do think that the challenges we face are overwhelming. Many people are confused. They're not sure how to sort it out. And I do believe that the church has something to say in the yep. midst of the conflict and the strife. And hopefully uh, Christian leaders can help chart a new path forward. 
So perhaps we could drill down on some of these specific issues. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that in recent decades, the broader church has suffered from political polarization, racial division, and cultural confusion about sex and gender. Uh, the liberal democratic experiment is under threat in many ways, as you mentioned. Uh, how do you believe that these issues are perhaps intensifying compared mm. to decades in the past? And as a first step, how should faithful followers of Jesus respond? I think there's a constant task which faithful followers of Jesus have which is to go back to the roots, to, to, to remind ourselves, not just of a few verses of Scripture which we learned when we were young, but actually how the great dynamic of the scriptural narrative works. That the scriptural narrative is the story about the Creator God who, faced with his world in ruins and his human God-reflecting creatures in, in rebellion, uh, decides to call one family, namely Abraham's family, the, the people of Israel, to be the means, paradoxically, of rescuing the world, paradoxically because they too, as the Old Testament insists, are part of the problem. But that sense of a people who are both part of the problem and the carriers of the solution goes all the way through to the point where we have Jesus of Nazareth, who is the, the archetypal Israelite, if you like, who then dies a horrible death which is the way that the problem comes to its height, but then rises again to launch God's new creation with the problem in principle having been dealt with. Now, that rootedness in the Judeo-Christian narrative has sustained Western culture really quite well compared with many other cultures over the years. But as and I, I have a vivid memory of this connected with New York because it was in New York in uh, April 2008 and Maggie and I were there at the time. I don't know if we saw you then, but Pope Benedict gave a very important speech at the United Nations in which he was talking about human rights and he was saying that the trouble is that we have tried in Europe and America to get the human rights stuff without the Judeo-Christian roots of honoring all people, etc. And the trouble is, if you cut off the roots, then the fruit is going to go rotten. And the sign of that rottenness, he said, was when human rights discourse collapses into a cacophony of different special interest pleading, where this person is shouting, you know, I'm a victim, so God listen to me. And that person is saying, no, no, I'm the real victim, therefore I claim the high moral ground, etc. And everyone is saying, we want our rights, but uh, that discourse, when cut off from the Judeo-Christian roots, then becomes a dialogue of the deaf, even and it's perhaps deaf because everyone is shouting too loud. Now, um, at the heart of the issue then, and I think it's long overdue that we should recapture this, is the early Christian emphasis, I'm thinking of people like Irenaeus and Tertullian, on the, the doctrine of creation, the first article of the creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the goodness of creation, that God wants human beings to flourish. He wants human beings to flourish in society. He wants human beings to flourish by doing justice amongst themselves. He wants human beings, male and female, to have wise, healthy, creative, procreative relationships, male and female. The goodness of God's original creation is the absolute bedrock for everything else that comes later. 
Part of our problem has been that we have really forgotten about the importance of the doctrine of creation, and we've thought so much about, uh, I'm a sinner and I want to get to heaven, so how's that going to happen? Well, Jesus died, therefore I go to heaven. Well, I'd much rather people believe that than they, they were, uh, I don't know, Hindus or, or, or Buddhists or something, but um, actually that's a distortion because it forgets that the redemption of the world is not a redemption from the world, but the renewal of creation, the reaffirmation of the goodness of God's creation. And uh, you can see this in the debates about the resurrection. People still regularly phone me up and get me to talk on this and that about the resurrection of Jesus. And I fear that sometimes all they really want to hear is, um, yes, you can believe this very odd thing because we found a scholar who says so, and now let's get on with doing what we've always done with our version of Christianity. Rather than seeing that the resurrection of Jesus has to do with God saying yes to his creation and its goodness, and therefore to all that renews and restores and rescues creation. And I think when you start to look at things like that, all sorts of issues come into a quite different perspective. I mean, the sex and gender issues, for instance, um, if you forget that what we're talking about is the goodness and renewal of creation, what you tend to think of, or many people tend to think of, is, oh, well, the church has had these rather odd rules over the years, like prohibition of divorce or uh, prohibition of homosexual behavior or whatever. Well, th these were rather odd rules which they had in the first century, but they don't seem to make much sense to us. And so uh, they are just sort of ethics. They're not part of the core gospel, as it were. And to that, we have to respond and say, well, it may be difficult to work it out, and it may need an enormous amount of pastoral sensitivity to apply this in practice prayerfully with individuals and groups and so on. But the Christian gospel is not about here's how you get saved and then, oh, by the way, there's some rules to obey over there while you're on the way. But this whole project is about God renewing his creation and you get invited to be part of it. And that's, that's what it's all about. Now, that's obviously applicable to issues of sex and gender identity and all that, but it's also applicable to how we do social justice and how we remind ourselves that what we think of as a state, a country, a nation, is actually a very modern idea. In the first century, they didn't have states and nations in the way that we do. They tended, in the Middle East, for instance, to have a community based on a city so that the Jews, Hoyudaioi, were the people who were in Judea around Jerusalem and the further you got from Jerusalem, the more they would be intermixed with other people who were focused on a quite different city somewhere else, and so on. And we have thought in terms of boundaries, borders, even walls, flags, national anthems, uh, identity in that sense, which very quickly becomes uh, controversial, confused, and conflicted in ways that are quite different from the issues in the first century. So again, we need to have wise thought about how we've got where we've got, and how as Christians, we can think about what justice actually means between different peoples as well as in individual cases. So these are just for starters, but th this is the sort of territory that I would want to explore. Right, that's very helpful. I, I, I think uh, framing everything as it relates to sex and gender and identity in the grand narrative of Scripture and God's ultimate purpose for all of creation, including us as humans, is vital and I think that's critical as well to how we think our way through the racial division that we're experiencing in the world yeah. today. Yeah. Following the murder of George Floyd, I initiated a sermon series at Central 
in which we discussed how we live very much in a us versus them world. But the scriptures tell the story of God's mission to bring us and them together. And we talked about how you can really trace this theme of reconciliation, though race was not a concept introduced in the scriptures because it hadn't been invented yet. Nevertheless, God is on a mission to bring about reconciliation among all peoples. And you can, you can see the reflection of the table of nations in Revelation, where the promise is that God will bring together people from every Agreed. tribe, language, yeah. people, and nation. And, so yeah. the question I'd, I'd like to ask then is if, uh, if people are confused about how to think through the racial strife in our world today, how might you paint a, a picture of the narrative that Scripture has to tell about uh God bringing humans together across difference. Right. I, I mean, it, it is, of course, part of the longer fall narrative. The fall narrative of Genesis 3, the initial rebellion of human beings, runs all the way through to Genesis 11, where with the Tower of Babel, human arrogance is punished by the division of people into different language groups. Um, now, language groups aren't yet um, races and nations as we think of them. And as you rightly said, the concept of race as we know it um, has got uh, unfortunate Darwinian overtones um, from the 19th century. Um, so that, for instance, a concept like uh, Semitism or anti-Semitism is only really meaning what it means in the context of theories of racial evolution. And that's something we have to name and shame quite early on in this discourse. From that, you get the idea already in the 19th century of a master race. Uh, and Nietzsche's Ubermensch comes in there, but leading on to, of course, um, the horrible ideas in Nazi Germany of a master race. They all come out of this. And uh, the, the terrible thing to me about that is that Christians who knew their Bibles ought to have said right from the start, this is a nonsense, this is a modern heresy, and we mustn't embrace it. Because in Acts 17, when Paul is speaking on the Areopagus in Athens, he says quite clearly, God made from one stock all nations of humans to dwell on the face of the earth. And the point was that they should all feel after God and find him. In other words, we're all in this together. And yes, we look different. And yes, we have different family backgrounds and so on. And we've lived in different parts of the world. But we're all basically the same kind of, uh, of being. And that's uh, it's a creational doctrine, which then comes through to Paul's doctrine of reconciliation, which you see spectacularly in Galatians, but also in passages like Colossians 3, where he says, not only there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but there's no barbarian or Scythian or, or whatever. Um, he's sort of uh, waving his arms at distant nations and saying, we can call them what we like, but it's actually all part of the same thing as far as God's concerned. And if they have fallen apart, and if they have gotten across each other, and if they are demonizing or victimizing each other, then the gospel of Jesus Christ has as one of its primary purposes, not a secondary purpose way down the line somewhere. You know, first you get saved, then eventually you might learn to be nice to people who are different from you. No, it's actually part of the core mission of the church to be the place where already in the present time, there is a community that sings the praises of this one God composed of people of all sorts and colors and shapes and, and languages. That vision in Revelation about the, the, the nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues isn't just 
for the for the ultimate future. It's for right now, and you can see that in Romans 15, one of my one of my kind of favorite passages that I keep banging on about at the moment, where Paul insists to the church in Rome, where already there were nervous divisions between Christians from different, probably ethnic, certainly cultural backgrounds. He says, no, the point of it is that right now you may with one heart and voice glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus. And he quotes a passage from Isaiah 11, the root of Jesse rises to rule the nations and in him the nations will hope. That's the Jewish Messiah is the Lord of the whole world, therefore we're all in it with him. But that passage from Isaiah 11 is the passage which is about the wolf and the lamb lying down together and the cow and the bear feeding and a little child leading them. And already in Paul's day, some Jewish interpreters had seen that as an image of very different nations learning to live at peace together. And Paul sees the the church as a microcosm of what God's intended future ought to be like. Now, it is to our shame that when racial theories came up in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century, the church did not with one voice say, no, this must be wrong because of this and this and this, and here's how we put it right. We have coasted along with it because we were so fixated on the medieval idea that the idea was for individual souls to find their way up to heaven, that we've forgotten about the New Testament ecclesiology, which says, no, God wants to dwell with us here and now, and that one of the signs of that in the present time is the coming together of people from very, very different backgrounds and contexts. This is one of the one of the many places, but certainly one of the central places where the church needs to be at the cutting edge of things. And if any Christians say, oh, you're just capitulating to some Marxist agenda, the answer is no. The Marxists came in because the Christians were forgetting what their agenda really was. You know, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is coming forward and and the men of violence are trying to get in on the act. Well, of course they are. And if Christians aren't doing their job, don't be surprised if other people perceive a vacuum and try and fill it. So there's all sorts of issues to explore there. But this is a central, not peripheral, New Testament emphasis. And it's about creation and new creation and about the signs of that new creation in the power of the Spirit here and now. The purpose of Resound is to strengthen the church for a changing world so that the gospel of Jesus might resound to the next generation. Learn more about our approach and programs at resoundproject.org. If you like what you hear and would like to help others find this content, please subscribe, leave a review, or share the podcast with a friend.